The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Test Your Knowledge, Are You Missing Myelin Oligodendrocyte Glycoprotein Antibody-Associated Disease, MOGAD? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash CTH860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Find out how much you know about new consensus recommendations for MOGAD diagnosis and best practices in management through a simple three-step process in this self-assessment activity comprising five question modules. First, answer the baseline question to evaluate your knowledge and skills. Next, review the supporting evidence shared by Dr. Michael Levy. Finally, answer the question again to demonstrate what you've learned. Each correct answer automatically counts toward post-test completion, which means that getting your CME credit is fast and easy. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Michael Levy from Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. Welcome to this educational activity on myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein antibody disease, or MOGAD. Our goals today are to, number one, understand the diagnostic criteria for MOGAD, as was recently proposed by an international MOGAD panel and published this year in 2023. Second, to use appropriate strategies, including the MOG antibody test, to identify MOGAD and importantly, to distinguish it from other demyelinating diseases like multiple sclerosis. And thirdly, we'll talk about treatments, including acute and preventive treatments for patients with MOGAD. So MOGAD, what's in this name? How did it come about? Well, back in the 1890s, Dr. DeVick published a series of cases of simultaneous optic neuritis and transverse myelitis. And he went on to coin the term neuromyelitis optica, which about 20 years ago was attached to the aquaporin-4 version of this disease. But if you look back at his series, there were certainly some cases of MOG in there, but the aquaporin-4 attachment to neuromyelitis optica has persisted and MOG has sort of been carved out separately. And over the past 50, 60 years of research in multiple sclerosis, we've been using MOG as the antigen trigger for experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis. In about 2003 or so, there was a proposal that MOG antibodies were present in people with multiple sclerosis and that it could be a biomarker for MS. Other labs have tried to reproduce that at the time, and it didn't really work out because only a small fraction of people with MS turned out to be MOG antibody positive. And so it turns out that these MOG antibodies were not necessarily reflective of MS. So as people started looking for who was testing positive for MOG, it turned out that people with demyelinating disease in the fraction of cases that were not MS, many of those turned out to have neuromyelitis optica. And many of them were aquaporin-4 positive. But among those who were not aquaporin-4 positive, about 40-50% turned out to be MOG antibody positive. And this is where MOG antibody disease really took off. We called it anti-MOG disease at the time, as shown here on the slide. But over the past 10-15 years now, MOGAD has taken over as the name of the condition. But this is kind of where it came from. And now that we have a good MOG antibody test, it's no longer confined to this pie of NMOSD. It's now become its own disease, its own entity altogether. So when we work up patients with demyelinating disease, MS is still the most common condition, accounting for probably 98 out of 100 cases of demyelinating disease. But the other 2% is shared between NMO, MOG, and maybe seronegative NMOSD. 
Most people who get a workup for demyelinating disease will now have two antibody tests sent off. The Aquaporin-4 antibody for the neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder cases. And now we have MOG antibody to make the diagnosis of MOG antibody disease. And although there's a lot of clinical overlap among these three conditions, we're going to spend a lot of the presentation today really highlighting the differences because immunologically they're very different and the treatments are very different. Now, if you grew up in the days of NMOSD and aquaporin-4 and the discovery of the aquaporin-4 antibody, you'll probably remember that we emphasized that bilateral optic neuritis was uncommon in multiple sclerosis and was much more common in NMOSD. Turns out many of those cases were aquaporin-4 negative and MOG positive. So bilateral optic neuritis is a very distinctive feature of MOG antibody disease. It's also found in the aquaporin-4 group and then much, much less common common in MS. With optic neuritis occupying more than half of cases, the other about 25% of that wedge is transverse myelitis, and many of them are longitudinally extensive. In kids, we have this interesting wedge of MOG-positive ADEM, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. And if you look at all cases of ADEM, more than half are testing positive for MOG these days. So most brain involvement, MOG antibody disease, looks like ADEM, and it mostly happens in children, although we have quite a few cases now of adult ADEM. And many of these cases present typically with change in mental status, seizures, and things like that. Now, because of this MOG antibody, the MOG antibody test is not perfect. And so there's a, an international panel that was convened to really dig deeper into those cases who do test positive for MOG antibodies and figure out who has this MOG antibody disease, this immunological process that's distinct from NMOSD and MS, and how we can distinguish even people who might test positive for the antibody, how we can pick out those who are false positive and actually have something else like NMO and MS. And so this international panel came together and over 70 meetings on Zoom hashed out this consensus criteria that I've highlighted here. So first is that there is a requirement for MOG to present with a core clinical event. Again, optic neuritis is by far the most common, but other things like myelitis, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, and then rarely other presentations of a monofocal cerebral event, which happens in adults, for example, or teenagers. We've also seen brainstem attacks, rarely cerebellar attacks, and then even cerebral cortical encephalitis, sometimes with leptomeningeal enhancement and sometimes without. And so these are all core clinical demyelinating events. They all occur strictly within the central nervous system. You'll notice there is no peripheral disease here within the core event. Once you have the confirmation of a core clinical event, then you look at the MOG antibody test result. If it's a clear positive, being a titer of 1 to 100 or higher, then no additional supporting features are required. So if you have optic neuritis and a positive MOG antibody test, and we'll go into how we believe these MOG antibody tests should be done. But if it's a clear positive, the diagnosis is done. It's specific enough that we feel comfortable making the diagnosis of MOG if and only if, part C there at the bottom, there's exclusion of a better diagnosis. So if you have really good evidence of a better diagnosis, then that can take precedence or at least be a strong red flag against MOG antibody disease. Okay, what if your MOG antibody test isn't perfect? 
Then we require two additional things. First of all, they have to be aquaporin 4 ser negative, because if they're aquaporin 4 ser positive, in almost all cases, it's the aquaporin 4 disease that's predominant over MOG. And what else do you need to have? You need to have another supporting clinical or MRI feature. MRI features that are supportive for optic neuritis include that bilateral involvement, as I discussed, and it should be bilateral simultaneous. Also, if the enhancement of the optic nerve is long, that occupies more than 50% of the length of the optic nerve, that's a supportive feature. Also with MOG, we've noticed that a lot of the enhancement is perineural. So the optic nerve sheath is enhanced and also optic disc edema indicating a strong anterior presence in optic neuritis. Those are all supportive clinical features. In the spinal cord, if you get a longitudinally extensive lesion, that almost never happens with MS. So that's a good enough clinical sign that we feel comfortable making a diagnosis of MOG antibody disease, even with low titer positive MOG antibodies. If the lesion is central or has an H sign indicating a lot of gray matter involvement, again, rare with MS, gives us confidence for MOG. And conal lesions, low thoracic lesions in the conus of the spinal cord, typical of MOG, much rarer with MS. And finally, with brainstem lesions and cerebral syndromes, if you have these big fluffy lesions that you typically see with ADEM, that's rare with MS. Deep gray matter involvement, again, rare with MS, much more common with MOG and also with leptomeningeal enhancement. All of these things are trying to help you rule out especially MS, but other autoimmune diseases and rule in MOG only in cases where the MOG antibody is low positive or is not reported. And then in all cases, you need to be able to exclude diagnoses that are better. So if you have a case that maybe could be MS based on the brain MRI, for example, that's not necessarily a better diagnosis. But if you have a brain MRI, you have oligoclonal bands that are positive, you have a family history of MS, then it's starting to look like a better diagnosis. And so it really requires physician judgment in ruling out a better diagnosis. As far as the MOG antibody test goes, the panel strongly endorsed using serum, not necessarily CSF, even though this is a CNS disease, the MOG antibody is much, much more highly concentrated in the blood and the serum compared to the CSF. We like using full-length MOG antibody as opposed to peptides in an ELISA assay. We prefer using full-length MOG in cell-based assays. It could be fixed, it could be live. They're both really good and there should be good positive and negative controls, obviously done by the lab, to give you the confidence that you need to make the diagnosis of MOG antibody disease. If a patient has a progressive course of disease, that's really unusual for MOG and much more common in MS, that should raise a red flag. If there's some super rapid worsening within hours that makes you think that this is more of a vascular phenomenon that should make you pause in your confidence of diagnosis of MOG because things that are super, super rapid, like, you know, five minutes from onset of disease to nadir, that's more typically an arterial vascular problem compared to MOG. Also, we know MOG is exquisitely sensitive to steroids, and if people have zero response to corticosteroids, that's kind of unusual for MOG. Lesions that persist more than six months that are enhancing on the MRI for more than six months that have a sort of neurosarcoid flavor, that's unusual in MOG. And then MRI findings, these typical MS lesions should certainly prompt a workup for MS. You want to get CSF, you want to get oligoclonal bands, and you really want to rule out MS. But some MOG people 
people do have T2 hyperintense lesions. They just don't usually fit a pattern that we see in MS. You then have to apply your clinical judgment. Is it more likely MS or is it more likely MOG? And that's where the MOG antibody titer is also helpful because if it's high titer MOG antibodies, then that usually rules in MOG. On the demographic side, we recognize that there's a bimodal age distribution. We have a lot of kids with MOG antibody disease. A lot of these present as ADEM. Some of them are ADEM plus optic neuritis, for example. In almost all cases of optic neuritis that are severe in children, it's going to be MOG and not NMO. MS is still obviously on the list, but even nowadays, we're starting to find that MOG is more common in children than MS in children. For adults, as I mentioned before, about 98 out of 100 cases are going to be MS. And then out of that 2%, you have all these other conditions involved. The race, I put on here predominantly white to distinguish it from NMO, where we see a lot of non-Caucasian patients. With MOG, it's probably more of an equal distribution. In countries that are predominantly white, you're going to get a predominantly white MOG population as well. The sex skew may be a little bit in favor of female, maybe like 1.2 to 1, something like that, or it may be more equal, especially the younger you go. So there are a lot more males with MOG than with MS and certainly a lot more males with MOG than with NMO, the aquaporin-4 type. The incidence is estimated at about 1.6 to 3.4 per million per year. So the prevalence is somewhere around, we reported as two per 100,000 or 20 per million. And as I mentioned, compared to MS, this is about 25 times less common than MS in the United States, for example. But as we're recognizing the condition more and more, we're starting to send for testing. And so even people who had a course that looked like MS, but had a few atypical features, now the antibody test is being sent more often or making the diagnosis correctly. The problem with MOG is that people are not as familiar with it. And so MS is sort of the default for almost all cases of optic neuritis, especially in adults. The default is to get a brain MRI and if you see a few lesions to make the diagnosis of MS. But in those cases, certainly a MOG antibody test should be sent. And especially if it has any of the classic features of MOG, such as the longitudinally extensive optic neuritis or bilateral disease. The other problem with MOG is that sometimes the condition is monophasic. In probably about half of cases, you'll get a severe optic neuritis, and the MOG antibody test is not sent, and the patients don't know if that optic neuritis is going to recur or something else is going to happen. And if we had that MOG antibody test at the beginning, we could be able to tell patients, don't worry, about half of these cases are monophasic. And so we know that happens with MOG. So if you're monophasic, that's great. It's something that we can expect. But if you don't get the test, then you don't know to be able to reassure patients about that possibility. These are a self-selected group of people who were already diagnosed with MOG and then were asked these survey questions about their patient journey. In about 61% of these patients, they reported that their diagnosis of MOG antibody disease was made within the first six months, which is pretty good. 
But they did report that in more than half of cases, there was an alternative primary diagnosis first that was not MOG. But you have to remember one thing about this MOG antibody test is it was not clinically available, commercially available in the U.S. until 2017. So a lot of people will have had an ADEM in childhood and then an optic neuritis before the availability of this antibody test. And so a lot of times that's what led to the delay of the diagnosis. And still, a lot of patients required expertise. Some of them had to see more than six doctors. The median saw four doctors before they could confirm the diagnosis. And usually these doctors that make the diagnosis are neuroimmunology specialists or neuroophthalmologists who know to send off the MOG antibody test. Another problem with MOG is that patients don't present with classic MOG symptoms. You could see in 21% of cases here, patients with MOG presented with headache and eye pain. And this is classic with the perineural or the optic nerve sheath enhancement with optic neuritis. As the patient presents with blurred vision, loss of vision, and some of these more specific symptoms, seizures, and especially urinary retention, suggestive of a caudal spinal cord lesion, that's when MOG antibodies should be sent. Now, for those who are trying to distinguish between aquaporin-4 and MOG, these are the cases that come in with a severe spinal cord lesion or a severe optic neuritis, and we've been training people, okay, think about aquaporin-4 disease in those cases. Well, it turns out MOG can also present in a severe attack. And so we've provided this table here to try to help distinguish between those two conditions specifically. We've noticed that MOG, because of the prevalence in children, the age average tends to be skewed lower compared to aquaporin-4 disease. We see a lot of cases that are in their 40s and even in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. So if you see an older person with a severe attack, that tends to be more aquaporin-4 disease. And if you see a younger person, especially a child, tends to be more MOG. That sex distribution is also really helpful. For example, a female in her 50s with optic neuritis, much more consistent with aquaporin-4 disease. If you see a 19-year-old male with severe optic neuritis, much more likely to be MOG antibody disease. Concurrent autoimmune disease is also something that's distinctly different between these two conditions. More than 25% of patients with aquaporin-4 disease will have antibodies to double-stranded DNA, will have a history of lupus or something like that, as opposed to MOG, where there's very little overlapping autoimmune disease. In fact, the number one most common overlapping autoimmune disease with MOG is NMDA receptor encephalitis, which is not considered a rheumatologic disease, but a very distinct neurological condition. Let's say you have a 39-year-old woman presenting with severe optic neuritis, loss of vision in one eye, comes into the hospital. You don't know in that circumstance if that's going to be aquaporin-4 disease or MOG antibody disease. The severity does not help you distinguish between those two diseases. But if they come back into your clinic three months later and they can see again, that's much more consistent with MOG. If they still can't see very well, even after you've done everything like steroids and plasma exchange, that's usually more consistent with aquaporin-4 disease. If you get a brain MRI and you see big fluffy lesions, MOG. If you see a brain MRI, not much at all, that's more consistent with aquaporin-4 disease. We've provided this table here as well to help you try to rule out multiple sclerosis. It's only in those cases where the MOG antibody is low that we really need to consider MS, especially cases of oligoclonal band positive with MS lesions, MS pattern lesions in the brain and the spinal cord.
So what does the MRI look like in MOG? Here's a classic presentation. This is a T1 post-contrast scan where you can clearly see the length of the optic nerves. And both of them are very enhancing, all the way from the retina into the intracanalicular and inside into the skull. You can see that those optic nerves are enhancing all the way down. So that's at least 40 millimeters, more than half of the optic nerve is involved here. And that's very, very consistent with MOG. Here's a classic lower thoracic spine lesion. In this case, it's not technically longitudinally extensive on T2 because you can see it only extends across two spinal segments. But these longer lesions are very rare in MS and especially central lesions involving the gray matter, lower thoracic spine and quadriaquina. That's much more typical of MOG. Okay, so now we're going to start the treatment section, and we usually divide treatment of MOG into acute and preventive disease treatment. So with acute care, there haven't been a lot of head-to-head -head or published studies, but there's a consensus emerging that corticosteroids are the first line of treatment, especially for first attack of suspected MOG antibody disease. If you know you have a MOG antibody disease case, and then they come in with an acute relapse, you can sometimes jump straight to other treatments. But first line for almost all cases is going to be high-dose methylprednisolone for five days or so with a prolonged oral taper. And most patients will respond to just that. If they don't, you can consider second-line treatment with plasma exchange, or more recently now, we've jumped to intravenous immunoglobulin, or IVIG, at the high dose of 2 grams per kilo. That's per kilo of ideal body weight, not actual body weight. And we divide it over one to five days to make it tolerable to the patient so that they can handle that kind of load of IVIG. Although they're exquisitely responsive to steroids, MOG people are also become dependent on steroids. And so when you withdraw their steroids, even in a taper, they tend to relapse. This is a study that showed exactly that. You could see as patients lowered their prednisone dose, every dose down, you could see 21 to 25 milligrams. You start to see some rebound attacks, 11 to 15 milligrams. You keep going down 6 to 10 milligrams, 0 to 5 milligrams. As you wean down the prednisone, the attacks start to occur. And then look what happens as soon as you stop the prednisone. In the first five weeks after stopping steroids, there's a really, really high risk of a relapse. And then over time, that tends to go away. So steroids are wonderfully effective, though they cause a lot of side effects. And then trying to get people off of steroids is the real problem. We've started to turn to IVIG, not just for prevention, but also as an acute treatment. This is a recent study that was just published that showed out of 39 cases, mostly optic neuritis, you could see both unilateral and bilateral optic neuritis, but also some other diseases, including ADEM, for example, and using the higher dose, this two gram per kilo dose, and sometimes, most of the time, I should say, with steroids, because people are still stuck on the idea that steroids are very helpful. But with this IVIG treatment, you could see we had a much better outcome. EDSS was lower. This is mostly optic neuritis attacks. But EDSS was lower on follow-up. Even by the end of treatment, it was already lower. So a typical score of four on EDSS means vision loss of 20 over 200 or worse. By the time they come in for follow-up, they're seeing at 2040 again or better. And this is 30-day follow-up. 
Also, if you look specifically at visual acuity, you could see an improvement there as well. So this is both EDSS from myelitis attacks and directly visual acuity. So IVIG acute treatment does seem to be helpful. This was a retrospective study, so we need prospective or better yet blinded studies to really confirm that, but this seems to be an effective strategy for acute treatment. Now, what about preventive? So if you think about acute treatments as being acutely inflamed, we have to put it out like a fire. Preventive strategies are, how do we prevent this from happening again? One of the issues with determining who to treat is that we know that about half of people are monophasic. We don't have a good biomarker for who's going to remain monophasic, except that people who lose their MOG antibodies over 6 to 12 months or so, or even a little bit later, those who seroconvert to negative, they're more likely to remain monophasic. So how do you know acutely they come out of the hospital, they just had a horrible optic neuritis attack, they don't want another one, and they were just tested for MOG antibodies, and they're one to a thousand. How do you know who's going to remain monophasic? We don't know. We're looking for biomarkers of monophasic disease, but at the moment, we don't know for sure. And so therapy can be offered to people who are monophasic, but you have to keep in mind about half of those will not need preventive therapy. It's just that we don't know who those are. Now, when we look back at our data, adults tend to have more recurrent disease compared to kids. If you recall the ADEM literature, the younger you are with ADEM, the more likely you were to be monophasic. Unfortunately, when you look back at MOG antibody cases in kids, these tend to be in tertiary referral centers where they do end up having more recurrent diseases. It doesn't look like age is as strong of a predictive factor. So I can't tell my 12-year-old kids who have a monophasic optic neuritis that they're going to remain monophasic at this time. But there are a lot of other proposed indicators of disease activity that people are looking at, maybe disease severity. Maybe if you have two or three attacks all within that first month, these sort of polyphasic attacks, are those predictive of recurrent disease? We don't know yet. MOG IgG serostatus and the titer, as I mentioned, the serostatus of going negative is a good sign. But what about people going from 1 to 1,000 down to 1 to 40? Is that a good sign? I think so, but we need data to prove that. Patient age, as I mentioned, used to be thought of as a good sign if you were young, but we need to make sure that that's true. And then the longer you go without a relapse, is that a good sign? Let's say you've been monophasic for three years. Could I discharge you from clinic? and say, chances are very, very low from now on that you'll have no attacks. Or what is that range? Is it three years? Is it five years? We don't know. Maybe people who have spinal cord involvement might have a higher risk of ongoing disease, or maybe that's just related to something else. We're just not sure. And then neurological disability certainly plays a part. I can tell you for sure, people who've had very disabling attacks, even with their first event, are not going to want to risk having a second event. There are a lot of options that have been tried off-label. IVIG is one of them at different doses. My colleagues in the Mayo Clinic, John Chen specifically, put together large case series suggesting that more than one gram per kilo, and most of those cases are about two grams per kilo, have about a 60 to 80% chance of remission, of not having another attack after starting treatment. And the equivalent dose is about 0.4 grams per kilo of subcutaneous Ig every week. 
Now, we don't know how long to treat. IVIG is a difficult treatment to administer. These patients have to get infusions, sometimes over two, three, four, five days every month. They get headaches. They get lots of other side effects. So it's hard to use and it's hard to convince people to stay on it for a long time, but we don't know how long to treat necessarily. Is it six months? Is it 12 months? Is it two years? Five years? We just don't know. Now, for those cases where we treat with IVIG and the MOG antibody eventually goes away, then that's a really good sign, as I mentioned before, that the disease is in remission. Maybe then we can stop treatment. The problem is that IVIG artificially makes the antibody levels go down. So in order to be confident about the outcome, you have to stop IVIG for about eight weeks, 12 weeks, and then retest for the MOG antibody. In that period of time, though, patients are, in theory, in a window where the risk is higher of a relapse if the MOG antibody disease has not gone away. But it's really the only way to test is to make sure that the patient is not artificially reducing their MOG antibody. Then after a period of about eight to 12 weeks, you can retest the MOG antibody if it's still zero that's a reliable sign that the disease is in deep remission. If it's not zero, do you start therapy again? We don't know. That's certainly a discussion point with patients about where their comfort level is. If they've been disease-free for a year on IVIG, do they feel comfortable watching and waiting at that point? Or do they want to go back on IVIG or maybe something else? So what are the something else's? Mycophenolate mofetil, I believe the dose is 1,000 milligrams per meter squared, especially for kids, tends to be helpful. You don't want to use it in women of childbearing age because of the risk of fetal deformities, but otherwise it's a pretty tolerable drug and associated with somewhere between a 50 and 70% chance of remission. And a lot of people where all else fails, they cannot handle IVIG or mycophenolate mofetilla is not effective. People can use prednisone on a daily basis and usually a dose of about 20 milligrams a day is certain to keep MOG from attacking again, but a 20 milligram a day prednisone dose is going to eventually cause lots of side effects. And so it's not a long-term strategy. In children, you could see here other treatments have been tried. Treatments like interferon beta and glutamine acetate, 10 out of 10 of these kids failed in this one study out of London. So MS injectables, no, don't work. General immune suppressive agents like azathioprine and mycophenolate, as I said, about half are effective. Rituximab that we use a lot of in NMOSD and B-cell therapy that we use a lot of in MS, not that effective in MOG. Six out of nine kids relapsed. IVIG had the best outcome here. Other therapies that we've tried off-label, tocilizumab is an IL-6 receptor blocker. You can see people who even who relapsed on many of these other treatments, you can see listed there, people who failed on azathioprine, rituximab, and so on, once starting tocilizumab, and this could be either IV form, 8 milligrams per kilo, or it could be the subcutaneous form, 162 milligrams injected every other week or each week. You could see there, there was a beneficial response with tocilizumab, even in refractory MOG. This in part prompted the phase three trial of the other IL-6 drug, satralizumab in MOG. Rituximab, as I mentioned in that kid study, turned out to be not that helpful when we put all of our data together in adults, also not that helpful. About two-thirds will fail rituximab. One-third will respond. So it seems like rituximab is not the treatment of choice for MOG, although it does not necessarily seem to be harmful. It just delays the time to using something more effective like IVIG or mycophenolate. 
Now, in this last section, we'll discuss the current phase three trials that are ongoing for MOG for prevention of relapses. The two that have launched are rosanoluxizumab and satralizumab. Rosanoluxizumab is an FCRN inhibitor. So FCRN is required to save your antibodies as they're being recycled by the natural plasma uptake and recycling process. If you have FCRN, it's going to bind the antibody and save it so that it can send it back out into the circulation. If you block that process with an FCRN monoclonal like rosanoluxizumab, then your natural antibodies get recycled and destroyed along with the rest of your plasma as it's going through its natural cleansing process. So with rosanoluxizumab, you get a steep drop. About 70% of your antibodies are immediately recycled within the first week of treatment. It's sort of like an intravascular plasma exchange process. And so with this drug, the trial design is going to be recruiting about 100, 104 people across many sites. I think it's 65 sites now worldwide. It's going to be double-blinded. So there is a placebo arm. No background therapy is allowed. The rosanoluxizumab is infused subcutaneously every week versus placebo. And the outcome is time to first relapse. The readout is expected to be sometime around 2026. The inclusion criteria are all adults. They have to have a confirmed diagnosis of MOG antibody disease according to the new 2023 criteria. And they have to have active disease identified as a relapse in the past 12 months. They also have the typical exclusion criteria, including making sure they don't have MS and they don't have aquaporin-4 or any other disease that could interfere with this treatment mechanism. The outcome measure is time to first relapse. And of course, there are many other secondary outcomes like disability, visual acuity, annualized relapse rates. And of course, we want to know that this treatment is safe. So there's an open label extension period where additional data will be collected, but patients are only allowed to have one attack before the open label phase. They have one attack, they immediately roll over. I already discussed the clinical rationale for using rosanoluxizumab in this study. I should mention any disease that basically responds to IVIG can potentially be treated with FCRN drugs. Satralizumab is an IL-6 receptor blocker, just like tocilizumab, but it lasts for one month in the circulation as opposed to tocilizumab, which has a shorter half-life. Satralizumab is already approved for aquaporin-4 and MOSD, and now they're developing it for MOG. They're recruiting a few more patients, 152 people all around the world. It's also a blinded, placebo-controlled study, but in the placebo arm, they are allowed to be on mycophenolate or azathioprine. Not IVIG, but if your patients are concerned about being on nothing in the placebo arm, they can be on some sort of background therapy. Otherwise, it's the same thing. They're going to be randomized one-to-one. -one. The primary outcome is the same. It's time to first relapse, and the expected completion date is sometime around 2026. Very similar inclusion criteria, but with a confirmed diagnosis of MOG antibody disease, but a little bit more lax in terms of age. So you can have teenagers enrolled in the study as long as they're of appropriate weight and size, and a little bit more lax on the active disease in terms of the time when their last relapse was. They can have one in the past 12 months, but if they've had two in the past 24 months, that counts as well. Much of the same exclusion criteria apply.
The rationale for using IL-6 is based in part on the benefit that we saw using off-label tocilizumab. There's also a lot of data in mouse models and preclinical data suggesting that blocking IL-6 is beneficial in MOG models. And we also know that IL-6 is high in the CSF of patients with MOG. So if we could block that, the thinking is you're going to lower the inflammatory threshold for this disease. And the endpoints are the same. Time to first relapse. Nobody's allowed to have more than one attack before it rolled over into the open label phase. So in summary, I hope I've convinced you that MOG is now a distinct disease, distinct from aquaporin-4 NMOSD and distinct from multiple sclerosis, but it's still a challenge to diagnose it. We have lots of good diagnostic tools, especially the MOG antibody test, but also tools like MRI to help distinguish MS. Right now, there are no approved therapies for MOG, but we have a lot of off-label strategies and we have a pretty good treatment for acute care. And for prevention, we're developing rosanolixizumab and satralizumab, and hopefully will be approved in the near future. So thank you for your time and attention. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CTH860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from UCB Incorporated. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids.